Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is a podcast from Lacuna magazine, looking into some of the philosophies and ideas that underpin the environmental movement. With the news dominated by the pandemic at the moment, any thoughts about the environment or even just the future can feel pretty distant. But with the devastating biodiversity reports that have just been released, the US and Amazonian wildfires, with much environmental destruction continuing now not just unabated but also unreported, these questions are more urgent than ever. The Stop Ecoside campaign that we'll be talking about today offers a glimmer of hope in a bleak year. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking with Jojo Mater, co-founder of Stop Ecoside, a campaign that aims to establish ecocide as a crime at the International Criminal Court. The head of the Royal Bank of Scotland was asked in a shareholder meeting, you know, why is it that uh, we're continuing to invest in these hugely destructive projects? And the response was, well, it's not a crime. Jojo Mater founded Stop Ecoside in 2017, along with the barrister Polly Higgins. It was way back in 2005 that Polly was in the Royal Courts of Justice, representing a man who had been badly injured at work. In her TED talk, Polly speaks about how, during a break, she looked out of the windows and thought about how the earth, too, had been badly injured. In the moment that she describes as having changed her life, she realised that the earth was in need of a good lawyer. From then on, she dedicated her life to campaigning for ecocide to be recognised as one of the five crimes tried at the International Criminal Court, alongside crimes such as genocide and war crimes, those crimes of gravest concern to the international community. But then, in 2019, at the age of just 50, she suddenly passed away, diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer just a month before her death. But her work has not stopped. Since her death, Jojo Mater has continued that work, coordinating the international team at Stop Ecoside and chairing the board that manages the campaign. Full disclosure here, I've been donating money to Stop Ecoside since Polly's death. When I read several obituaries about her and her work and came to believe that it was one of the clearest and best ways of changing the conversation around our obligations to protect the planet. And I'm not alone. After battling as lone voices for many years, Suddenly everyone from Greta Thunberg to Emmanuel Macron is talking about the need for ecocide to be a crime. Jojo carved out a couple of hours from an intensely busy schedule to sit down with me at the end of summer. And I began by asking her where her passion and drive to make a difference came from. I kind of grew up with a very kind of strongly instilled connection, I suppose, and concern for nature that came through my parents. How, how was that instilled? Well, I mean, my, my mother's actually a singer and a songwriter. Uh, and a poet and her focus is very much on nature and on the seasons she's kind of contemporary folk I guess but I grew up with that um constantly in the background so um and, and she used to you know we used to go on walks together and she she's a fantastic naturalist and she always knew the names of all the flowers and the, the, everything by the wayside she'd be able to give you know give names for and and um and yeah I always feel a little bit like you know she might have been disappointed that I didn't retain all of that information, but clearly that that sort of deep concern that she had and that that love of nature definitely sort of percolated through to a sort of cellular level, I think. <laughs> you know, even though, you know, the first part of my career was actually not even a career as such. It was quite kind of patchwork. I did 
languages as my first degree and then anthropology. I did quite a bit of travel, worked in the travel industry. Um, then I ended up design, doing a lot of design work. So a whole bunch of stuff. But in the background, um, I was, was I suppose, what, what now gets called an armchair activist. You know, I was always kind of, you know, signing petitions and sending off emails and so on. Yeah. But, um, but there was a particular moment that made a difference in terms of really kind of getting me out of that armchair and onto the streets. And that was fracking when it was, it was actually before anyone in the UK really knew what it was. But, um, you know, I came across it and that it was happening in America. And it was just one of these moments where I was like, how can, you know, how can this be happening? This seems so incredibly insane and polluting and toxic. And I remember talking about it and my daughter overheard me. She was five at the time. So when, when was this? How long ago? This was, oh God, this would have been 2013, something okay. like that. Yeah, because she's, yeah, she's 12 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she, she just burst into tears. And, 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 and she said, Mummy, I don't understand. You know, surely they know if they're poisoning the ground, they're going to be poisoning themselves. You know, can't you call them, tell them to stop? And, you know, I had just had this moment where I was, you know, a five-year-old can yeah. understand yeah. this is, you know, this is, a, you know, a really basic principle that, you know, we're violating nature here. And um, and she she kept, you know, she kept asking me, she said, mummy, did you call them? And I said, well, you know, I wish it was that simple. And she said, well, who can you call? Um, and we had actually just recently been to the local elections. She'd been to the ballot box with me, with her little brother. They were running around, you know, while I was putting my cross on the bits of paper and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd explained a bit to them. And she said, so she said, can't you talk to the voting man? Um, and, so, <laughs> and so I ended up kind of booking myself into, the, into a local MP surgery and going and having a whole conversation about fracking. And, um, and yeah, and it was one of those moments where, I mean, we had a, a, a Tory MP at the time who was very good at that kind of slippery politician thing of avoiding all your questions. Uh-huh. And I remember coming out of that meeting thinking that is never going to happen again. I am going to be completely informed and, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be worked around when I want to say something about what's important to me and important to my daughter. And, you know, they're growing up into this world, you know. So that was that was a real kind of crossroads moment. And I, I, I started getting very involved in the anti-fracking community. So was fracking happening around in your area? Um, it, it wasn't a direct threat in where, where I live, which is in the Cotswolds. But that said, that very year, um, a whole bunch of licenses had been sold off by the government for potential unconventional oil extraction. And some of those sections were in our area. And so, you know, I started kind of looking into it. And along with a, um, a fellow campaigner, we did some local surveys and, you know, showed that the, there wasn't any social license for it. And then I kind of got involved on a bit of a bigger scale, got involved in the whole national scene. But it was through that that I met Polly Higgins. And I mean, I'd come across her, of course, um, you know, in the course of my environmental interests and thought, well, that sounds like the biggest game in town. Wouldn't it be great to work on that? Then she moved to our area. Right. Okay. So it was a sort of fortuitous string of events in a way that that brought you two together. Yes, I think so. I mean, she she moved to the area and some mutual friends introduced us uh, and she was looking for somebody to help with some research on uh, on fracking for a case at the time, a, a potential case she was putting together. And these friends said, well, you have to talk to Jojo. She knows all about that. And it was one of those kind of kindred spirit moments, you know, within, you know, the first couple of afternoons we spent together. It was like, wow, you work just like I do. (laughs) She was very much kind of, you know, think on your feet, act fast, talk fast, get things done, you know. Because it sounds, I guess when we sort of think about ecocide and the kind of legal approach to to, to the environment, it can sound quite 
stayed in a sense, but I get the impression from reading about Polly that she was quite a troublemaker as well. <laughs> yeah, she was anything but stayed. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, I suppose she treated law in a very creative way. So, um, one of the things that's interesting about this work is that actually we often find it's starting to change now, but we had historically often found that lawyers were often quite skeptical about the possibility of criminalizing ecocide. And there's something about the kind of legal training that sort of sets you on tracks in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you learn the adversarial system, you learn the whole, you know, direction of, you know, what you can and can't do and, you know, using the technicalities of the law to get what you want, um, you know, as a result in the courtroom. Um, but not that many lawyers think about it the way Polly did, which was really a, a very kind of big picture approach. You know, the law is, it's a tool. It's about, you know, what does it serve? You know, right now it mostly serves ownership and property. Um, what would it be like if we actually expanded that box um, and, you know, used it for the prevention of harm in, in on a global scale? So, so perhaps you can just kind of talk me through what ecocide is. I, I, I did a talk last week with Beverly Wright, who um, was a big environmental justice campaigner in Louisiana. So she was talking a lot about environmental justice and some of the sort of procedures through courts that are available to people living in the chemical corridor along the Mississippi to challenge the factories and, and challenge the, the various toxins that are coming out and causing childhood cancers and all that kind of thing. But, but ecocide is not that, right? E e ecocide is... A more sort of macro picture than the kind of environmental laws that already exist. It, absolutely. And I think one of the things, one of the key things to bear in mind is, I mean, there are fantastic um, lawyers, you know, taking suits against, you know, some of the, the kinds of situations you've been talking about. Um, but with ecocide, yeah, you're looking at the grand scale because actually on the criminal side, there is no kind of equivalent in the, you know, with regard to the natural world to, you know, the laws we have with respect to other people, you know, effectively, I mean, think about it, you know, you have a right to life, but what protects that right to life is the fact that murder is a crime. So, you know, there's a whole, for example, there's a whole uh, rights of nature movement uh, growing up worldwide, as you'll know. And actually, in some ways, that is better known than than the move to make ecocide a crime. So this is kind of when a river gets legal personhood or something like that. Exactly, exactly. So that's starting to happen in various places. Um, but unless you actually have a crime that says, you know, you can't damage beyond this degree, um, then, you know, the rights themselves is, you know, so how are you going to uphold those rights? So, you know, we see sort of ecocide crime as this kind of key piece. I mean, the way that I often think of it is that um, it, it's a kind of missing foundational piece. I mean, if you imagine campaigning for human rights or, you know, campaigning for social justice and all of those things, if it was still all right to murder people, you know, mass killing, not a problem, but how are you going to campaign for human rights? It'd be very, very difficult. But that's actually what environmental campaigners are doing all the time, mm. because there is no really fundamental criminal law in place that says, you know, you, you damage the earth or you damage an ecosystem to a certain extent. That is just not allowed. So there are four major crimes that are governed by international criminal law, and those are war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and more recently, crimes of aggression. And those are there because they are considered the world's most serious crimes, the ones that are of most serious concern 
for humanity as a whole. Now, although we've got lots of environmental laws around the world, and although we now have the Paris Agreement, which shows that every, every country in the world has made that equation of, you know, we do too much of A, it's going to lead to B. Um, what we don't have is a law that can actually deter people from the kinds of destruction that have led to the climate and ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think it's now quite difficult, particularly given the information that's come out in the last few years, you know, it's quite difficult to say that um, mass damage and destruction of the environment is not one of the most serious issues facing humanity right now. So the idea is to put it up alongside those serious crimes and create a truly enforceable deterrent. Because most environmental law is actually in the civil law arena, not all of it, but most of it. Um, and it involves regulation and it involves a lot of technicalities about how much of this toxin you're allowed to use and how much not and so on. But there's not this kind of fundamental piece that says you know thou shalt not destroy ecosystems effectively right in the same way that we have thou shalt not kill precisely i suppose i suppose what, what feels shocking with, with with you saying that is is it feels like we don't not kill people because the law says we can't it feels like we don't kill people because we find it abhorrent and i, th I, I suppose a lot of people that are campaigning on an environmental stance or probably almost all individuals feel in the same way that destroying the environment is abhorrent but what you're saying is that that's kind of meaningless when it comes to the corporate world. If there's not a law there, the moral argument doesn't really stand for anything. I think that's right. And I think that, that, what, that what that illustrates is that in our kind of dominant global culture, we use criminal law as a moral line. And it's interesting, if you, if you ask people, you know, if you talk about environmental destruction, most people do feel it to be criminal. Um, but because it's not actually hasn't been kind of put beneath that red line, the restriction isn't there in terms of the kind of cultural mentality. And of course, you know, legally speaking, CEOs are, are obliged, they have a duty to maximise profit and return to their shareholders. So that, you know, has all, you know, has been in the last, you know, few decades, that has ultimately been the bottom line, literally. In um, 2011, I believe, the head of the Royal Bank of Scotland was asked in a shareholder meeting, you know, why is it that uh, we're continuing to invest in these hugely destructive projects? And the response was, well, it's not a crime. And so, you know, that kind of summarises it really very succinctly, that when you bring criminal law into the equation, something very different happens in terms of how people perceive an activity. Um, another example was I was speaking recently to an insurance expert. Now, that's not my area of expertise, but he was talking about how, um, you know, companies use these kind of risk and governance frameworks to, um, you know, to assess things like climate risk and, and, and the kinds of risks that are appearing now with what's happening in the environment. And he asked me, how does ecocide law fit into this picture? And I said, look, you know, I'm not an expert on insurance, but I can tell you that it would fit into that picture in exactly the same place as murder. And he can, you can see his face just kind of go, wow. You know, it was like this sudden understanding that actually, you know, it's a completely different ballpark. It's not something that you start assessing the mitigation and the profit and loss. You simply say, okay, actually, we can't do that because we get sent to jail if we do that. Right. You know, and, and so that just gives you a flavor of the difference um, with bringing in something as a crime. This is Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and today I'm in conversation with Jojo Mater. 
The day we spoke, the CEO of Rio Tinto, Jean-Sebastien Jacques, and two other senior executives had just been forced into resigning following intense pressure from their investors. In order to be able to mine for better quality iron ore, Rio Tinto had taken the decision to blow up rock shelters in Western Australia that were 46,000 years old, despite knowing of their importance to the traditional Aboriginal owners. I asked Jojo about the case and how a law of ecocide might have dealt with such an action by a company. Well, I think that's interesting, though, because it also does put a finger on where the kind of lever is with criminal law, because it is about individual responsibility. So effectively, you know, that CEO personally suffered. He was removed from position um, because of what he did. Now, of course, if a crime is in place, that is absolutely where you're targeting because you're actually looking at those in positions of senior responsibility being held criminally liable to prosecution. Um, so it's very different at the moment. Corporations can, you know, they can hide behind the corporate curtain, if you like. And, and actually what happens if you change regulation is you don't tend to change corporate activity. What you change is corporate budgeting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that effectively, if new regulations come into place, it's about, well, how likely are we to be sued for doing X, Y or Z? Or, you know, how much are we likely to have to pay in fines? Or how much do we need to pay our lawyers in order to work out how to get around and what we need to do to meet this regulation? But with a potential, you know, jail sentence on the cards, there's there's no hiding from that. Mm. So it becomes much more effective. I think at, at this point, it's also worth saying that it's not about the little guys who are carrying out the job. It's about, like the Rio Tinto guy, you know, it's about the people at the top who are making the decisions. So just as with genocide, you don't prosecute the foot soldiers, you prosecute the controlling minds. You know, it is the guys who are making the decisions who are the ones who will be potentially, you know, in that firing line or in the dock, if you like. Right. We wouldn't be holding people that took cheap flights or business flights or anything like that. We're looking at the, at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. People often get worried about that. And, you know, they talk about, you say, well, aren't we all committing ecocide, mm-hmm. you know, by driving our cars? And obviously on one level, that's the case. Um, but in effect, you know, I mean, I drive a fossil fuel car. I don't drive a fossil fuel car because I choose to do that. I drive it because I can't afford anything else. And those decisions are not taken by me. Those decisions are taken at the top level of finance and industry and lobbying and politics. So, you know, it, it makes sense to be actually aiming at that at that point. And that's the kind of narrative that sort of muddied the waters for years, isn't it? Putting that blame on the consumer rather than what's available. In fact, one, one of our media team actually um, got very frustrated about this recently. And she said, you know, the biggest kind of corporate PR coup of the last, you know, 25 years is persuading ordinary people that they are responsible for what's happening to the planet um and and actually you know people talk about consumer choices but actually we should be talking about you know what options people actually have you know as a citizen that is making a decision that's actually an ethical decision you know what options do they actually have there's a huge responsibility that the corporate you know pr industry has really in this and also you know the media in terms of the language that we use around this and you know this whole idea of people as consumers rather than as citizens you know of their country or of the world you know has people kind of narrowed down into you know it's it's all about what i buy now i don't want to discount that clearly it matters hugely what people buy and actually given that there is no law of ecocide currently consumer power has achieved some amazing things in terms of you know steering what companies do mm-hmm. 
And that brings me on to a different point, because I think one of the things that's important about making ecocide a crime is different from the reasons for making, say, genocide or war crimes criminal, because, I mean, I doubt there's such a thing as an average genocidal maniac, but let's say there were, um, they probably don't care what people think of them. That's kind of not part of the package. With a CEO, they care very much because given that, you know, the whole idea is shareholder return, given that, you know, it's all based on investor confidence and public confidence, there's actually a very different effect to criminalizing uh, ecocide than there is to criminalizing genocide because you're actually creating a deterrent that potentially has a, you know, is actually usable and has a, a, a you know, a workable, you know, real world off-putting element to it, um, which is part and parcel of what running a company is about, which is effectively your public image. So there's, there's a real power there, I think. This is Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth and I'm speaking with Jojo Mater, founder of Stop Ecocide. I asked Jojo where the original use of the term ecocide came from. So, yeah, so ecocide in etymologically literally means to kill your home. Um, in the same way as homicide is to kill a person and genocide is to kill a people, ecocide is to kill a home. Um, and, of course, our common home is the planet. So it's literally about, you know, destroying the earth, if you like, sort of etymologically, that, that's what it means. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit more recent than genocide um, in terms of the use of the word. It was first used um, by a chap called Galston in 1970 um, about the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam and the ecological destruction that was wrought there. He described this as an ecocide. Um, and following that, it was mentioned, it was described as such by Olaf Palmer, who was the premier of Sweden in the uh, environmental UN Environmental Conference that was held in Stockholm in 1972, where he also talked about our common home and the common responsibility to look after that home. And I mean, what's interesting is that there, the, the concept then you know, it continued to percolate in the background of international law and environmental law um, over the following decades to the extent that it actually became part of the drafting of the code that was to become the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So for many years, the concept of serious environmental destruction was in that drafting, um, but it never made the final draft. And in fact, it's still a, a bit of an issue of mystery in that um, the article concerned at the time it was Article 26, it was dropped without a vote between one working group meeting and the next. And we still don't know exactly how or why that happened. There has been investigation into which countries seemed in favour of it or not in favour of it in different minutes of different meetings. And there are certain countries that emerged as clearly not wanting it in some way, not wanting it in the draft. And the UK was one of those, as was the US, as was France, as was the Netherlands and into Brazil. And the interesting thing about that is certainly those first four are all oil states. Um, but there was also some discussion, I believe, around uh, nuclear testing as well. And that that would obviously put a limit on nuclear testing. It's a bit difficult to argue that a nuclear weapon is not ecocidal. So, um, so yeah, there are, there, are, um, there are a number of elements that 
may have contributed to the dropping of it before it actually came into force with only three crimes in 1998, where it actually came into force in 2002, but was signed in, in 98. Um, and we ended up with war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. And crimes of aggression was added later. So had things played out in a different way, your idea might not be radical at all. It might have just been something that's been as normal as genocide for the past 20 years as a crime. We'd be in a very different world if that had been the case. Mm. And if you think about the last 20 years, if it had been illegal to, you know, to destroy ecosystems, you know, on any kind of scale for that time, I think we'd be looking at a very different world now. I don't believe it's too late. I know some people do believe it's too late. You know, we don't. But we also see that there's a huge urgency um, that is increasing year on year in terms of bringing some kind of serious measure in to, um, to, to slow what is happening globally. And, you know, the way we see it, ecocide law is not sufficient for creating a thriving world, but it is necessary. We can't see how without doing this, we can actually hold either corporations or states to the ambitions that they publicly declare. Um, and so many of the solutions, um, you know, are out there, but they're not being followed fast enough. Mm -hmm. And Christiana Figueres has said this on numerous occasions, you know, since kind of brokering the Paris Agreement, the direction of global business, it's starting to move in the right way, but it's just not going anywhere near fast enough. Mm -hmm. And from our perspective, unless something like this is put in place, it's very hard to see how it will. But then I suppose one concern is that the ICC is not known for its rapidity either. Right? <laughs> I, I, I had, to, had, to, had to read down the list of people that have been brought to trial over the last 20 years. A lot of people have died before they've made it. A lot of people are fugitives. A lot of people have been charged for six months. Is the ICC powerful enough to push that crime of ecocide? I'm really glad you asked me that question because um, there are some very specific reasons why we are going for this particular approach of going by the ICC. And none of them are to do with its effectiveness in the last 20 years. Um, the first one, I suppose, is to, to reiterate what I mentioned in part earlier, which is that the nature of this crime is different to the other crimes. It has the potential to be an enforceable deterrent, to be, a, you know, to actually be a deterrent factor to be far greater than with the other crimes. And that's ultimately what we want. Yes, of, you know, of course, as an activist, there are a number of CEOs that I might be very happy to see in the dock, but actually that's not the point of what we're doing. The point of what we're doing is to change practice and to change practice, you have to have an effective deterrent. And so the deterrent um, possibility of ecocide functions in a different way to war crimes or genocide because CEOs care deeply about their public image. So that's one thing. The other thing is purely for the mechanism of it. And this is really important because the way the ICC works, I mean, around two thirds of the world is signed up to the ICC. There's 123 members. There are some conspicuous absences, of course, like, you know, the US and China, for example. But I'll come on to that in a minute. Meanwhile, you've got 123 countries that are members of the ICC. And if uh, a crime is accepted, is, is amended at the ICC, it becomes part of the Rome Statute. All of those member states can then ratify that crime. When they ratify that crime, they have to apply it in their own jurisdictions within a year. So a year after they ratify it at the ICC, it goes into their own jurisdictions. So, I mean, that maybe begins to show you the potential power of this. You can create a coherent approach and definition that's cross-border that people can adopt very simply without having to go through their, you know, without their own parliaments necessarily having to go through the ins and outs of how to define that. 
you know, they can take on that definition and then apply it in their own countries, then end up with this kind of coherence across borders, which is essential when you're dealing with ecological damage, because the biggest polluters and deforesters and all of that are transnational corporations. If you try to do this legislation, but, you know, jurisdiction by jurisdiction or other, you kind of end up kind of chasing your tail all around the globe. Whereas if that's done at the ICC, you're instantly accessing the criminal justice systems that already exist in every country in the world. So, I mean, at least in theory, in a few years' time, you'll be able to tap a policeman on the shoulder and say, there's an ecocide going on over there. I want to report it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the difference is people think about, you know, often when they think about environmental legislation, they think about suing corporations. But with suing corporations, that that is you or your community, or if you're lucky, you know, your NGO pitted against a big corporation in court. With criminal law, it's different. It's prosecution. You know, you, you report it the state prosecutes so is the idea that eventually we'd have the ceo of a fossil fuel company or the ceo of a mining company standing up in the same dock that's had a Gaddafi or a coney in it that the aim would be to put these people on an equal pegging with war criminals to make a pariah of them there are certain communities that don't like that idea that you know that say that you know making ecocide the same as genocide is somehow disrespectful to the victims of genocide but i mean our response to that is is so i suppose it's twofold really one is that you know with genocide we're talking about one people or potentially individuals deciding to persecute a, a, a particular group in whole or in part of other people with ecocide We're now at the stage globally where if ecocide continues, we're actually looking at potentially the entire human race being under threat of extinction. You know, I mean, that is not an exaggeration anymore by any degree. And so to put those two alongside is actually not unreasonable. And if it ever was, it certainly isn't now. And so there's something about that. There's also something about the making that equivalence that does something else which I think is very interesting. It starts a kind of a cultural shift in the sense that it starts to shift the way we value nature, the way we see nature. Um, simply by virtue of those two things being equated, what we're saying is that you know the life of ecosystems is as valuable and as important as the life of human beings. And what that potentially starts to do is to give us a bit of a sense that we are actually deeply interconnected with nature, that actually we are part of a whole biospherical ecosystem on Mm. this planet that is, you know, is not a situation of, you know, we are somehow these kind of, you know, dominant masters and, you know, the world is given to us as a playground. It gives us this sense that actually we are deeply intertwined. We depend completely on natural ecosystems and their functioning. Mm. And so there's a way in which almost leads towards a stronger, more systemic shift potentially in law, which is what, you know, we see as the, the rights of nature direction, if you like. I mean, actually, interestingly the the rights of nature discourse is more advanced in 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 many ways than ecocide is a crime and yet it does involve a much more systemic shift of how people think legally because with ecocide crime you're essentially saying this much damage and destruction is simply illegal it's kind of adding something to a list of existing crimes it's actually relatively straightforward in terms of actually putting it in place 
with rights of nature, I know there are particular places that have been given legal personhood and so on, but that whole discussion is actually much more fundamental to how the legal system works because the current legal system simply doesn't usually consider elements of nature or ecosystems or animals or whatever to have legal personhood or to have rights. And there's, of course, there's a whole nother discourse around what kind of rights would those be. I'm not going to go into that in detail now, but but just to say that I've always very strongly related to just the whole concept that effectively every part of the living world has the right to be what it is. So for a river that is to flow unobstructed or, you know, a healthy quality of water that allows the ecosystems within it to flourish, in essence, a kind of a a similar concept, if you like, to the right to, you know, to be a person and to live your life, Mm -hmm. you know, without you know, let or hindrance, assuming you're not damaging anybody else. So that that kind of principle, if you like, has not yet in, in any kind of general sense been extended to nature. But my feeling and, you know, our, our sense with ecocide law is that there is the opportunity to create a kind of a bridge there to actually begin to sort of move in that direction. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Jojo Mater. As we come back in, Jojo is discussing how spiritual leaders have recently stepped up to demand crimes of ecocide are held to account. Uh, recently, one of our advisory board actually met the Pope last week, in fact, at the Vatican as part of an eco delegation and actually a phenomenal experience from what she said. And he set aside his um, his pre-prepared speech and sort of launched into a, a sort of spontaneous description of his own conversion. And he described it as a conversion, an ecological conversion, where in communication with the indigenous leaders in Brazil and also First Nations leaders in Canada, that he basically went through this process where he, you know, he really kind of realized at a very visceral level how deeply interconnected humanity and nature are. And and when he brought out his encyclical in 2015, it was the result of those consultations, but also really digging into the science and looking at what is actually necessary in terms of what the economists call ecosystem services, but actually what, what it is that nature does that supports civilization. And so we have a situation now where you have the faith leaders and the indigenous leaders, the, you know, the sort of spiritual leaders effectively kind of tapping us all on the shoulder and trying to point out factual reality. <laughs> I, we are completely intertwined with nature and we must look after nature you know, we end up in trouble. And, you know, we've seen that, of course, with the pandemic as well, um, that, that, you know, many sources are now saying, you know, this is hugely to do with our destruction of natural habitats mm-hmm. that these viruses are happening. And so you have the, the faith leaders pointing out factual reality, and then you have political leaders like your Trumps, your Johnsons, your Bolsonaros, you know, supposedly these materialist e- economics-driven leaders operating on pure faith. Because actually, GDP growth and constant use of resources on a finite planet doesn't correspond to reality at all. But is there a danger that if, if, if our whole society, if our whole civilization is built on the premise of ecocide? I, I, was, I was reading this morning about how the, the Ganges was given legal status in India. And then the Indian Supreme Court removed it three months later because they said it was legally unsustainable. Presumably it just felt it was just opening such a can of worms that they just had to close it back up. Like once you start prosecuting ecocides, it almost feels, you know, where where do you stop? You'd be tapping a policeman on the shoulder every minute and saying there's an ecocide going on over there. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely understand that objection. And one of the key things about this process is precisely that it's not an instant process. Um, we already know that, I mean, you know, we look at Agenda 2030, we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, we look at, you know, the, the kind of ambitions that people are trying to put in place. They're basically saying, everybody's pretty much saying, we have to seriously turn this ship around by 2030. Now, to put this crime in place, there are a certain set of uh, procedures that must be gone through so you have to have a, a state has to propose it so, yeah let's let's sort of walk through that slowly and, and kind of talk about how this might happen so a state or a group of states needs to propose an amendment to the Rome statute we're working with a small group of states at the moment and we believe that within the next couple of years possibly even next year but certainly within the next couple of years we could be in a position where there's a state or group of states ready to do that so do you want to talk about about who those states are that you're working with so um, some of it I'm able to say and some of it I'm not, because as you can imagine, you know, with it, with diplomatic work, quite a bit of it does is behind closed doors until those states themselves are ready to to come out and say something. So, I mean, a perfect example of that is Vanuatu. Um, we worked with Vanuatu for three years before they made their statement at the assembly of the International Criminal Court, which was last December. So Vanuatu is one of the small island states that's being affected by rising sea levels at the moment? Very much so. It's actually been listed as one of, if not the most climate vulnerable uh, state in the world. So we were working with them for uh, around three years, um, enabling them to bring delegates to the International Criminal Court for the assemblies, for the annual assemblies, um, and, and you know, essentially creating you know, the strategic and practical and financial support as well, which is what one of the things that our campaign does, is it supports those, those delegates to actually be in the right rooms and at the right tables and so on. So we did that for three years as, a, you know, really kind of helping them to understand what, you know, the potential of this. And actually, of course, ultimately, it's it was them. It was it was Vanuatu that decided to step up and make that announcement when in no position to do that for them. Mm -hmm. um, but it was incredibly exciting because what that did and, and the Maldives backed them up very quickly, literally within um, 24 hours, issued an, an official statement in support where they, they called seriously for the consideration of ecocide at the International Criminal Court. And that was incredible because it was the first time since Olaf Palma in 1972 that it had been brought up on an international forum in front of representatives of countries from all around the world. So that was a huge step. And what that did for, you know, effectively for the campaign, but also for moving this forward, is that it brought the whole discussion back onto the international state level which it hadn't been at for nearly 50 years. Um, so that was incredibly exciting. One of the um, fantastic aspects of the International Criminal Court is that it is a one state, one vote scenario. So, you know, when the small islands, which they did speak, they spoke up a lot around the time of the Paris Agreement, you know, Samoa and other of the islands were very instrumental in crafting of the Paris Agreement. Um, and that was one of the things that sort of, you know, really alerted us to, you know, these guys have a real incentive and potential to move forward on this. And ironically, it's not at the COP talks, but at the ICC, that they actually have the power to do it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, with the COP negotiations, it's ultimately a kind of corporate sponsored jamboree in the sense that those with the, the most sponsorship, the most funds, the most delegate, biggest voices are the ones that ultimately get the spotlight. Whereas with the ICC, because it's a one state, one vote situation, a small island state has just as much power as a large G7 economy to actually put forward an amendment. Then more recently, there have been developments in Sweden with the workers' movement, um, which is which is a very interesting one for us because, and you'll be familiar with this. I mean, the media have done a great job over, you know, over some decades of 
in many instances pitting jobs against nature you can you can have a nice environment or you can have jobs and of course you know the international trade union congress is, and and you know has, has been saying for some time i believe you know there's no jobs on a dead planet mm. and a real concern of the sort of recovering from the pandemic that's a narrative that we're going to be getting again we haven't got time to think about climate change just now because we've got two million unemployed yeah but yes yeah, so that that was very interesting because the swedish workers movement issued an official statement we would like sweden to lead on this um and then shortly after that we have this amazing situation in france and this is very interesting in terms of where the pressure comes for a change of this scale because it feels as you as you mentioned earlier it feels like a very top-down thing you know let's put it in the international criminal court now, our campaign actually approaches it from both ends. You know, so we have a public facing campaign where we, you know, where we're, we're wanting to to encourage grassroots support. And indeed, that is that is happening, that is spreading. And as well as the legal and diplomatic side, where we're actually dealing directly with representatives from states and, and, and diplomats. Now, in France, this was a really a grassroots thing that happened because the French government had brought in the, the fuel taxes effectively to, uh, to address climate change. And the Gilets Jaunes movement clearly showed that the French population didn't like that approach. So, you know, the French government effectively ended up convening this citizens' assembly of randomly selected citizens, 150 people, um, to bring their own climate policies to the government to consider. So it was like, you know, you don't like our policies, create some and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and what actually happened um, was that the top policy of the 149 policies that were recommended to the government by this climate assembly, you know, 99.9, sorry, 99.3% of those citizens assembly members um, voted to have ecocide made a crime. Um, and so that was effectively putting Macron in a bit of a corner because obviously, you know, he, you know, he convenes the Citizens Assembly, Citizens Assembly comes back and says something he doesn't really want to do. And in fact, had 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 addressed a couple of times last year, um, you know, ecocide was brought up in Parliament and twice it was rejected. But in this instance, he didn't have a lot of option. And, and perhaps coincidentally, but very fortuitously for the campaign, several French major towns fell to the Greens the same week. So by the time that Macron actually came to addressing the proposals of the assembly, he was pretty much forced to be positive about the idea of criminalizing ecocide. So, I mean, what we would love to do, of course, on the back of that, and, and it has started to happen, is, is actually have other states realize that this is something that politically they can also do, but also have citizens realize that this is something that they can do, that they can actually create that pressure. Um, because it's very much that's what that's what happened in France. Mm -hmm. and in Belgium, where there had been some discussion already, you know, that they really seized that moment to say, right, Macron has now come out in favor of ecocide at the international level. And of course, this is and this brings up something else I'll come back to, but you know, so that, that kind of create starts to create a sort of snowball effect where other states are then able to talk about that. You know, there is so much of a of, of a sense of not wanting to be the first one on the block you know, which happens in politics all the time. And so the fact that, you know, one of the G7 nations head of state had said, you know, this is a this is a monumental battle at the international level. We need to be able to hold leaders accountable at the International Criminal Court. And he actually used those words, you know, which was fantastic. So then literally within a couple of weeks, um, a bill was submitted to the Belgian parliament, which is to be discussed, I believe, later this month or next month. And so that, you know, a very concrete domino effect, if you like, that is beginning to happen. Um, and we are now beginning to get uh, interest from other countries as well. I'm not yet at liberty to say who they are. But um, but in terms of parliamentarians wanting to bring this into the political arena in those countries, um, what I can say is that you, the UK is not top of the list. I wish it was. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so you can see that there's actually quite a mixture of countries that are interested in talking about this. I would say it's it, it's a slow process, but actually right now it's a very fast process. It, it's it's become it's one of those things where what we've realised is this kind of goes in in jumps. So it may have taken us three years to reach the stage where Vanuatu and the Maldives were prepared to put it onto the international stage. It then only took four or five months before that happened in France. You know, it then took two weeks before that popped up in Belgium. And we've now got three or four other countries in discussion with us. So, you know, this is something that we believe is accelerating. And it also feels like it's accelerating from a UK perspective that suddenly it's something that Extinction Rebellion are talking about, that Greta Thunberg was talking about it, that, that Greta Thunberg just gave you a proportion of the prize money that she won. It, it, it feels like it's, it, as, as a sort of activist aim or, or something concrete to campaign on it feels like it's growing as well absolutely and i think this is really important because obviously extinction rebellion very much started off from the perspective of this is what is wrong you know this is this is what isn't working um and now to start moving towards you know this is something that we think should work you know could work and and, and should be put in place it is very important and i think that's also been the case with um with greta with the open letter that she and the other activists submitted you know urging eu leaders to you know some very specific solutions you know whether that was particular rigid carbon budgets or whether that was advocating for ecocide as an international crime those are actually very specific things that states can do and that activists can ask for so i think Yes, that's a, a really important point. This is Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth and I'm speaking with Jojo Mater, founder of Stop Ecoside. So what next? So how do we get from this point now of a kind of build of countries getting interested in it to it becoming the fifth crime? I, th I think it's probably good to, at this point, maybe go through the stages of what's involved in making that a crime. So the first aspect is for a state to propose it at the International Criminal Court. And that is that is done. It's actually submitted to the UN Secretary General, in fact. That's the first port of call. And it can be uh, any state. It, it doesn't need to be more than one state. It can just be one state. I mean, obviously, we'd like it to be a group of states. And then three months has to elapse before, you know, after that and before the next meeting so that there's a, a chance for all the nation members, member nations to be alerted to it. And then at the next assembly of states parties, which usually happens in December every year, you have to have a simple majority of those present and voting to, to basically have it considered admissible, to have it discussed, to put it on the table. Your third stage is actual adoption into the statute. Now, that takes two thirds of members um, have to vote in favour of that. So currently that's 82 members. Now, actually, more members may well come on board. I mean, some of the islands are starting to come on board precisely because this is an arena of discussion. Um, so that number may change. But effectively, it's two thirds. And that's the point at which the likelihood is that you would have something like a crime review conference where you would actually get the states together and that would be organised as a separate conference to the assembly, which happens yearly. That's the most likely scenario. And at that point, the you know the minutiae, if you like, of the definition would get um, negotiated and, and bashed out, hammered out. Um, and what you want to emerge from from that is, you know, a two thirds majority in favour of including the amendment then you you know finally then you're at the fourth stage which is ratification and any state can ratify after that adoption has happened any state can ratify and then a year later they have to include it into their own uh, criminal legislation but even if they don't ratify they can still be tried at the icc is that right 
Yes, um, the way that that works is that effectively, if you don't sign up, if you don't ratify it, you don't have to apply it in your own jurisdiction. However, under Euro universal jurisdiction principles, which are subscribed to by some countries, including Belgium, for example, and can in theory be applied anywhere in the world, so long as the crime actually exists, in other words, so long as it's there in the statute, any jurisdiction can prosecute anyone for that crime, as long as the perpetrator sets foot on their territory. So um, this principle was is, is kind of um, the way that it worked with Pinochet in 1998. So under a Spanish arrest warrant, Pinochet was arrested in the UK. He was on UK soil. He was arrested by the, U, um, the UK police and tried in the UK. And he said that, you know, Chile was not signed up to the relevant conventions and therefore he couldn't be prosecuted here. But the UK Supreme Court decided otherwise, essentially said, you know, we do subscribe to that and you're on our territory and therefore in our jurisdiction and we do prosecute for that. So we're going to prosecute you. So that principle is applicable even if a country hasn't ratified or even if a country isn't a member. The US is not a member, but under universal jurisdiction, a US national could be arrested for an international crime um, that is governed by the Rome Statute if they set foot in a country that has ratified that crime. Yeah. And it'd be quite hard to do business without setting foot in other countries. I guess it's a lot harder for a CEO than a war criminal to kind of just sit in their bunker, isn't it? That's exactly the point. So the, the idea is that potentially, even if everyone isn't signed up to it, what you start to create is a marginalisation of the, you know, the worst polluters and so on. Mm. And, and I think, again, you know, one also needs to come back to the fact that the deterrence aspect is very strong. So simply in the fact that once you criminalise something, people over time start to believe it's the wrong thing to do. So, you know, that that also happens. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got the, the, the sort of moral pressure that, as we were talking about earlier, of a CEO thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to be in the same bracket as a war criminal. So there's all of that as well. So there are a number of factors that contribute to the effectiveness of approaching the International Criminal Court that we believe, you know, hugely outweigh the fact that the criminal court itself has as some lawyers say it, has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, you know, we are hugely behind the, the mechanism of the International Criminal Court and, you know, believe it could actually really come into its own with a crime like this in place. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether pushing for a crime of ecocide in this way, making it an international question rather than a national campaign, makes it easier then for countries to sign up to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's actually a really important factor, uh, particularly in terms of sort of spreading the campaign and recruiting other governments to come on board, because most jurisdictions are very wary of acting on this alone, because people have, um, governments have um, strong established economic relationships that they don't want to jeopardise. They also have a sense of competitiveness with other nations that they feel might be, you know, put at risk. They put a law like this in place in their own nation. However, as we mentioned in a, in a slightly different context earlier, there is now a huge awareness that something very serious does need to be done. And leaders want to be seen to be doing it. But they want to be seen to be doing it without having to, you know, drop their polluting partners tomorrow. And this campaign actually offers that opportunity, if you like. It offers an easier political avenue than legislating at the national level. That is not to say that we would discourage anyone from legislating at the national level. We think that would be wonderful. But we focus on the international level because 
if a government is able to say, and this is this was very much the position that Macron was in, they may be able to say, you know, we yes, this principle is great and we'd like to incorporate it into our national legislation, but we feel the real fight is international and we would support it at the international level. If you get enough governments saying that, and, you know, in the meantime, the negotiations and the work that we're doing in terms of advocacy is actually helping a group of states to potentially actually put this forward. At that point, you've got the safety in numbers of lots of people moving together so it doesn't feel like you're out on a limb, but also a, a sort of lever with those governments who have been saying, you know, who say, who are happy to say this, you know, which which I think most governments would prefer to say this. They would prefer to say, you know, I supported it. We supported it at the international level um, and, and and not not so much at the national level because it's an international issue. Um, and actually, it's a kind of a win win because, you know, for, for national governments, they get to know that they don't have to act immediately in terms of this drastic legislation but at the same time they know that when it comes it comes for everybody or it comes for a very large number of people together and so there's a kind of safety in numbers factor mm -hmm. um, and of course you know from our perspective it's also you know it's a win on our side as well in the sense that you get something together at the international criminal court you've got something that's potentially you know coherent across a whole number of nations um so it, it's it, it's it's got you know, political advantages as well as sort of practical legal advantages um, to approach it in that way. And so what happens now? Supposing this does get put forward to the International Criminal Court, what happens next? This is actually going to become, as soon as the state actually proposes it, a potential realities. You're effectively saying by proposing that, you're saying that this may this isn't going to happen tomorrow. There are stages this has to go through. But we're looking at a few years and a crime like this could be in place. At that point, and, I, and we actually already know that this is, is already happening, at the level of those at the beginning of the production chain, so actually the, the investors, but even more, the insurers as well, are going to be watching that very carefully. They're the ones that see things coming earliest because they're the ones that are going to pick up the bill when stuff goes wrong, right? So um, even back in 2012, Polly Higgins was being told by one of the biggest reinsurers so the ones who insure the insurers, um, were saying to her, we know this is coming. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And as soon as a state has put that on the table, that becomes you know, much more globally visible. It Effectively, what it does is it brings the law up over the horizon. It allows people to see it coming. And this is, I think, where the positive side of the economic direction comes in, because there are amazing solutions out there. You know, we have the capacity to create, to manufacture, to recycle, to farm regeneratively. You know, all the solutions are there. It is not stuff that needs inventing. It's all there. You know, when that you know, when, when we see that law coming over the horizon, at that point, what's going to happen is you're going to end up with a door closing or, if you like, almost a leak being plugged, you know, where the funds are all kind of trickling off into these sort of traditional filthy um, approaches to doing, um, you know, to manufacturing and to extraction and to production and food production. All If you close that door, you've got some very powerful um companies who already know that sooner or later this is going to be coming in guys we're going to actually have to turn this around really fast we're actually going to have to move in a new direction now now people like bp can already see that coming you know, we've, we've we've seen what their you know their recent um changes in policy and 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 so on where they're putting their money as well it just so happens that they're still plowing their money into the oil exploration at the same time because there's no reason to stop that yet 
Yeah, exactly, because that hasn't been stopped. Mm. But the point is, those big companies actually, I mean, you know, I spoke, I think it was last year to um, someone in the Shell Renewables Department. Um, and, you know, they're doing some amazing things. I mean, really amazing things in terms of the, the technologies that they're developing. But it's a fraction of what they do with their business, mm. you know, because they're still allowed to carry on with business as usual. And what happens with funds is just like water. It goes down the path of least resistance. You know, you, 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 you want the water to flow in a different direction. You want the funds to flow in a different direction. You've got to put a little block in that place where it's always flowing. And that is what ecocide law can do. And, and, and in, I think in this context, it's possible to actually converse with the corporate world and say, guys, this is about putting a safety rail in place. This is a guardrail. You know, we, we, we want to put this safeguard law in place to allow you to do what actually probably quite a large number of CEOs would love to do, actually, if you if you talk to them over their dinner table, mm. you know, is move stuff in a more constructive direction. Because at the moment, they don't have the ability to say, I'm not allowed to do that. We're going to give them that ability. We're going to give them that tool, you know, the ability to say, actually, that's illegal. I can't do that. Just like I can't go and, you know, kill 20 people to carry it. You know, this is not to say that these things don't happen. I mean, we have a law of murder. Murders still occur. But can you imagine if we didn't have a law of murder? Mm. And it doesn't mean you should get rid of the law of murder because you've still got murders <laughs> exactly. happening. Exactly. So, you know, it allows things to flow in the right direction. I mean, I've been reading um, Bill McDonough's wonderful book, Cradle to Cradle, and Kate Rayworth on donut economics. And, you know, these these theories, these practices are already there. I mean, I'll tell you something a bit crazy. I actually was in tears reading about a sofa the other day, which sounds insane, but it was this section in uh, the Cradle to Cradle book where they were talking about approaching this company. And I believe it was a Scandinavian company in the end that, that did this. I can't recall the name off the top of my head, but what they were looking for was the ability to produce, um, you know, a household item, a big item like a sofa, which is normally horrifically difficult to recycle, horribly toxic in its production and, and indeed in its use. Um, and they wanted to, you know, produce something that was not just not harmful, but actually beneficial to the environment. And what they ended up with, and they it took they had to go around a whole bunch of chemical companies to actually find somebody that was willing to do this, to actually do this investigation and to work, you know, to create these fabrics with them and so on. But they managed to create a natural fabric that they could build this sofa out of. And they did it with um, using a very small number of chemicals compared to the, the usual hundreds or whatever that go into the process. And what they ended up with was a situation where the factory was more pleasant to work in and the workers were healthier. They ended up with a product that was fully biodegradable and, you know, effectively, you know, more than recyclable. It could actually be nutrient, if you like, once it, it had finished its life. And the water, the effluent, which normally when you say the word effluent, right, you think like filthy, polluted water coming out of a factory mm. at the end of the process. Their effluent was actually cleaner than their influence. They were actually <laughs> producing drinking water. And and I, I had to, I literally, I mean, I just, you know, I, I actually started to cry because I was like, oh my God, this is what we can do. This is what we are perfectly capable of doing. And actually, if we apply ourselves, there is no reason we can't do this across industry. I mean, you know, when I was researching fracking, I, I found how many years and how many how much expertise and you know top level academic brains and ingenuity had gone into devising the techniques for fracking if we have that level of ingenuity that level of you know dedication and those funds you know so actually closing the door 
to that one thing, which is, you know, large scale damage, you know, potentially actually opens the door to all the things we love about entrepreneurship, all the things we love about producing, you know, what we need in the world. Um, you know, whether that's following biomimicry or, you know, circular economy, all of those things. I think it's potentially hugely inspiring. And I mean, how much fun? I mean, who wants to carry on doing things? in a crappy dirty way where you can go wow let's really tackle this thing and do it properly and you know make it better (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to spoken earth edited and produced by uli mattson music by uli mattson performed with ben o'connor and amir shoat it's a lacuna podcast thanks for listening